I do not know if Ida Skripnikova, quite a long last name, a Russian last name, Skripnikova, I do not know if she ever owned a Bible. But I do know that she heard the gospel and she became a Christian. In the fall of 1961, this 19-year-old young lady came to know Jesus Christ. Ida lived in Leningrad in the Soviet Union, and Bibles were outlawed. Worshiping with believers was outlawed, and telling others about Christ was outlawed. But she determined to tell others of the wonderful new life she had found in Jesus Christ. She purchased some postcards that had a beautiful picture of a harbor at sunrise on them, painted by Claude Lorraine. On the back of each one, she wrote a poem. It was entitled, Happy New Year, 1962. And each postcard said this in her handwriting. Our years fly past, one after another. Unnoticed, (coughs) grief and sadness disappear there, carried away by life. This world, the earth, is so transient. Everything in it comes to an end. Life is important. Don't be happy-go-lucky. What answer will you give your Creator? What awaits you, my friend, beyond the grave? Answer this question while light remains. Perhaps tomorrow, before God, you will appear to give an answer for everything. Think deeply about this, for you are not on this earth forever. Perhaps tomorrow you will break forever your links with this world. And then in all capital letters, seek God while he is to be found. Then she took her postcards and she stood at the Nevsky Prospect, which in Leningrad is equivalent to standing on Fifth Avenue in New York City. And she handed out her postcards to all those who passed by. For this, Ida was arrested. In April 1962, she was tried by a communist court, was exiled from the city of Leningrad, and lost her job as a lab assistant. But Ida continued to tell people about Jesus Christ. And in 1965, she was arrested again, sent to a labor camp for one year. After she was released, she continued to tell people about Jesus Christ. In 1968, she was arrested again and sent to a labor camp for three more years. What was there about this defenseless young lady that the authorities were so afraid of? Why did Ida remain such a faithful witness to Jesus Christ even after suffering so much? It was because she had come to know the God to whom all men must answer. And it was because she was no longer afraid of what anyone could do to her. In Acts 1-5 through we see the witness of the apostles Acts 1.8 tells us that the final words, the very last words that Jesus said to his church before he ascended up into heaven were, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus ascended up into heaven and was not seen again. The next time this word witness occurs in Acts is in Acts 1 verse 22 when the apostle Peter declared that it was necessary for them to select another apostle to take the place of Judas who had committed suicide because they needed 12 apostles as a witness of his resurrection. 
men who had been with Jesus from the very beginning and who could witness to all that Jesus had done and to the fact that they had seen him alive, they had talked with him, they had eaten with with him, they had touched him after he had risen from the grave. And on the day of Pentecost, after they chose that 12th apostle, 10 days after his, resur- his ascension into heaven, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus did pour out the Holy Spirit and filled his apostles with boldness to testify that they had seen the resurrected Jesus. Peter states in his first recorded sermon, In Acts 2.32, God has raised this Jesus. We, meaning all the apostles with him, are all witnesses of this. But their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus consisted of even more than the fact that they saw Jesus with their eyes and touched him, touched his body with their hands. The Spirit filled the apostles with the very power of Jesus to perform miraculous wonders and signs. Now, we need to realize that these miracles showed that Jesus, it showed to all that Jesus was still alive and he was at work empowering his apostles to work miracles. In his sermon, Peter quoted from Joel 2, in which the prophet Joel predicted that the coming of visions and prophecies to sons and daughters and to young and old servants of God and the pouring out of many wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below, all of this marked the beginning of the age of the Holy Spirit and the beginning of the new creation. We must also remember that all these visions and prophecies and wonders and signs didn't begin on the day of Pentecost. They began with the coming of Jesus. An angel appeared to Zechariah to announce the coming of John the Baptist, that he would be born and he would prepare the people for the coming of the Lord God. An angel appeared to Mary to tell her that she would give birth to the Son of the Most High who would receive the throne of his father David. Elizabeth prophesied. And another woman, Mary, prophesied. And Joseph received a vision. And angels announced the birth of the Messiah, the Lord, to shepherds in a field. And a very strange and unusual star appeared in the sky in the east and led the wise men to travel all the way to Jerusalem, all the way to the house where the baby Jesus was staying. No one knows what kind of star this was that could appear, not being in the sky before, and travel a great long distance at a slow speed and stop over a particular house. I tend to think this miraculous star was an angel shining with the brightness of his glory to lead them to Jesus. And then throughout his entire life, Jesus Christ revealed his power to heal every disease and every person who came to him and even to raise the dead. But then the religious leaders crucified Jesus. They killed him as a criminal. And Jesus was gone. And the world did not see him anymore. But Acts 5.12 says many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. And Acts 5.15 and 16 say as a result they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats 
so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a multitude came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. When Peter went through the streets of Jerusalem, wherever he walked, there were people who had flooded in from all of Judea and placed all the sick people of the entire region lined them up on mats and cots beside the side of the road, not trusting that even if Peter did not stop to speak to them or touch them, if he just walked by, that his shadow might pass over them and they might be healed. This is the incredible power of Jesus at work in the midst of the people and all of Judea is being emptied of sick people who are being healed by the power of Christ. The apostles manifested the miraculous power of Jesus and their message to the people was God raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. What does that mean? That means Jesus lives, and so shall all who trust in him. But the religious leaders thought they had done away with the annoyance of Jesus Christ, who didn't submit to their teachings and their views. And they condemned him as a criminal and crucified him. And now they discover that his power is at work. Of course, they didn't believe that. And they are annoyed at the apostles and they annoy, are annoyed that the apostles are proclaiming that Jesus, the one they condemned, that they killed, that the apostles are proclaiming he is alive and he is at work. And now they determine they are going to get rid of these annoying apostles. And Acts chapter 3 and verse 6 tells us that Peter said to a man who was unable to walk since birth, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, by the authority and power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I say to you, get up and walk. And he got up, he stood up, and he was walking and leaping and praising God in the midst of Jerusalem. And everyone was seeing it, and everyone was praying, praising God for what was happening in their midst. But when I say everyone, I do not mean the religious leaders. Because lo and behold, their reaction to the words of Jesus in the name of, the the words of Peter who said, in the name of Jesus I say to you, get up and walk, their reaction was, you can't do that. And they arrested Peter. And they arrested all the apostles. And they dragged them before the Sanhedrin and they threatened them. Bad things are going to happen to you if you don't stop teaching. They sort of pass over the healing part. Teaching in the name of Jesus. But while this was a crisis for the church, it was also comical. For as they're threatening the the apostles, all of Jerusalem is praising God for the work of healing done through the apostles. This lame man was now walking and leaping and praising God all through Jerusalem. And what do the apostles do? They gather all the believers together and they worship God. And they pray. But do they pray, Lord, please, please don't allow us to be put into jail. Don't allow us to, to suffer for your name. No, they don't pray that. They never mention that. They, they, they do mention the threats 
You say, Lord, you've seen the threats. Lord, make us bold to keep preaching in your name. Acts 4.29 tells us that they prayed, And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. And verse 31 tells us how God answered their prayer. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. All of them, all the believers, they weren't afraid. They weren't frightened. They were emboldened to speak and to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ. This miracle was a sign. This shaking of the building was a sign. Not not that it was a faulty and badly built structure, but that God was in their midst and that God was present with them. And as a result, every believer was emboldened to witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We too need to make great use of our resource of prayer. For prayer lays hold upon the robes of God. And God is the one who can fill us with boldness to tell others about Jesus. We do not need to fear men. For God is present with us. And in chapter 5, the religious leaders now decide to flex their power. And they again arrested the apostles, all of them, and they put all of them in jail. And they stationed soldiers there. And in the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord opens the door of the jail and takes them out and says to them in Acts 5.20, Go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. That is, tell them about the new, spiritual, eternal, spirit-given life that is ours through faith in Christ. Tell them about that. And they do. And the leaders, when they come together the next day, they send for the prisoners, the apostles, to be brought from jail. And they're waiting and... The jailers come back with no one. And they say, where are they? And they say, we don't know. We locked them in jail, but they're not there. And someone says, "Um, someone has reported that they're in the temple. And they're telling people about Jesus. And they say, well, go get them. And they go, but they very gently say, "Um, could, could you come with us? please. And they go back with them to the Sanhedrin. And the high priest says to them in verse 28, 528, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Aren't we overlooking something here? How did they get out of jail? (laughs) Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Um, The apostles weren't making them guilty. They made themselves guilty. And Peter sees this as a wonderful opportunity to preach his fourth recorded sermon in Acts. And he says, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Ouch, that wasn't the religious leaders, was that? And what do the leaders do? They order the apostles to be taken out and beaten. 
And they order the apostles again not to speak in the name of Jesus. That is, with the authority of Jesus. And they're really saying, don't go heal people in the name of Jesus. Strange request. The power of God at work. And they do everything they can to suppress it. And what did the apostles do? Verses 41 to 42 say... They went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Catch that word. They went out not with their heads down, not worrying. What are we going to do? They're threatening us. We can't preach. They're going to throw us in jail. They're going to execute him. What are we going to do? No, they went out rejoicing. Rejoicing. And I lost my place. I'm looking for it that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Thank you, Lord. We got to suffer for your name. We got to be identified with you. We are associated with the God who saves and heals, the Lord of the universe who rules all. Thank you, Lord. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. And every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They're saying, you want to arrest us? Go ahead and arrest us. You want to throw us in jail? Go ahead and throw us in jail. You want to do worse? Go ahead and do worse. We have to obey God rather than man we will preach and teach and share the good news of the gospel. They rejoiced and shared the gospel. I remember when I was young, I was, I was timid, I was shy, I was afraid. I, I still think I am to, to a degree afraid to, to, to witness to people. And uh, even, even such an incredibly great evangelist as D. James Kennedy uh, shared how when he went into homes to, to witness to people and he's having polite conversation and then he tries to move himself to the gospel. He, he just can't do it and he would slap his knee and, and then get into it. Just go forward. And, and why is that? Why, why are we afraid? And, and as I think about it, I, I think I'm afraid to share the gospel because I'm afraid of what they're going to think of me. What is going to happen to the good opinion they have of me? Are, 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 are they going to think I'm a fool? Are they going to ridicule me? Am I going to lose them as a friend? What, what can they do to me? Well, how do you face that? How do you overcome that? Well, God tells us right here in the text how you overcome that. He tells us how you get past the fear of being called a fool and being ridiculed and being mistreated. Here is how. The apostles rejoiced. They rejoiced. They took joy in the fact that they had the privilege to suffer for the glory of Jesus Christ. Why did they rejoice? Because there is no higher privilege than to be associated with the Savior and to suffer for His glory. And if you can see the joy and the glory in suffering for Jesus Christ, then your fear of men will be gone. Michael Card wonderfully sings, Seems I've imagined Jesus all of my life as the wisest of all of mankind. But if God's holy wisdom is foolish to men, he must have seemed out of his mind. When we, in our foolishness, thought we were wise... He played the fool, and he opened our eyes. 
When we in our weakness believed we were strong, he became helpless to show we were wrong. And so we follow God's own fool. For only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable. And come, be a fool as well. We've seen the witness of the apostles, but in Acts 6 and 7, we see the witness of someone who's not an apostle. He's a deacon. Stephen. And this brings us to the greatest witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ recorded in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit so filled Stephen that Acts 6, 8 says that he was performing great wonders and signs among the people. The Jews began to argue with him, but the Spirit filled him with such wisdom that verse 10 says they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. So the Jews again revealed their depravity. They seized Stephen. They hauled him before the Sanhedrin and they brought in false witnesses who accused him of slandering Moses and blaspheming God. And they accused him of speaking against the temple and against the law of Moses. We should note that Stephen is now being treated just as Jesus was treated. And the word witness and, and the word witness is used here to refer to those who came to court and lied about what Stephen had said and done in order to destroy Stephen and his powerful witness for Christ. It is a terrible thing to be lied about and falsely accused. We might expect Stephen to have become angry and to fiercely attack those who were destroying his reputation and, and all that he had said. But we see no such thing. Verse 15 says, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin, chapter 6, verse 15, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now I ask you, what does the face of an angel look like? It doesn't tell us. This is important to know. What did Stephen's face look like? What did it convey? What does the face of an angel look like? What does the face of a sinless angel who dwells in the presence of God look like? Evidently, Stephen's face showed no anger, no agitation, no fear, no guilt, no worry, no bitterness. His heart was at peace before God. He was falsely accused and his heart was at peace before God. And then the high priest asked Stephen in chapter 7 verse 1, are these things true? These horrible things that have been said about you? Are these things true? And he could have simply said no and stopped there or, or said no I never said anything like that. But he couldn't stop God had just opened the door for Stephen to give a witness to the religious leaders that Jesus is alive and Jesus is bringing life to those who are spiritually dead through faith in Christ. And Stephen preached his only recorded sermon with, with great joy. In the first eight verses, Stephen speaks of God's wonderful grace to Abram. God called Abram to leave his country and leave his family and leave the false gods of his country and his family. And Abraham, Abram obeyed and worshipped God alone. And though God never gave any of the promised land to Abram, he promised all of it to his offspring. And God gave his covenant to Abram and to his offspring with the sign of circumcision that is a picture of the Spirit's removal of one's 
sinful nature. In the second eight verses of Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, Stephen spoke of God's miraculous care of Joseph and his raising Joseph up to save the Israelites from famine. Jacob was buried with Abraham in Canaan as a sign that the land would belong to their offspring. And Joseph ordered his brothers to place him not in the ground in Egypt, but in a coffin, and to wait until the time that God delivered them from Egypt and brought them back to the land of Canaan that God had promised them, and then bury Joseph's coffin in the ground in Canaan. Joseph's coffin sat in Egypt for almost 400 years as a promise from God that he was going to bring his people back and give them the promised land. And then in verses 17 through 38, Stephen spends most of his time focusing on Moses because Moses was the prophet that the Jewish religious leaders revered above all others. He was the one that all things had the pass to pass the litmus test of Moses. And if it didn't agree with what Moses said, it could not be true. And Stephen speaks of Moses, and he identifies him, number one, as the one who spoke face to face with God. Number two, as the ruler of God's people. Number three, as their deliverer. Number four, as their prophet. Number five, as their lawgiver who received living oracles to give to them. In verse 37, Stephen quotes the very words of Moses saying, God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among your brothers. Who is this one like Moses that God would raise up for the Israelites? Who was encompassed by a cloud on a mountain and heard the words, This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Whom did the angel Gabriel say would receive the throne of his father David? Who died to deliver God's people from their sins? Who prophesied that he would rise again from the dead? Who sat on a mountain and delivered God's new law to the people? Jesus, uh, Stephen has just pointed out that all the acts of Jesus demonstrated that he is the one that Moses himself, the prophet revered by the Jewish religious leaders, Moses had predicted that Jesus would come and do everything that Moses did. And Jesus had come, and he had done everything that Moses did. But notice the interesting statement in Acts 7.38 that Moses received living oracles to give to us. Now, oracles are divine words. Uh, they're words from God. And Moses delivered God's holy law to the people. But the words of the law are here called living oracles. The, the, the law, the word of God is said to be alive, active, living. And the only similar statement that I can find in the Bible is Hebrews 4.12-13. through 13 which says, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now we all like to think, wow, there's some things I don't want anyone to know. I'm not going to share those with anything. I'm glad that no one knows about them. But God knows. But we think we can hide from God. But what does his word do? His word penetrates like a sword and it exposes 
all our thoughts and our very motives for what we did and it exposes our sinfulness and his word convicts us while we are trying to hide it his word convicts us of the sinfulness and wickedness and evilness of what we have done his word is active and living and powerful and it breaks our hard hearts and humbles us before God if we will listen to it. It has the power to produce repentance and faith in us. And there is a second sense that the phrase living oracles conveys. It is the idea that these words the words of God bring life. These are living oracles. They are oracles that bring life to us. Oracles of life. Deuteronomy 32.47 says about the law of Moses, they are not meaningless words to you, but they are your life. And by them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. What does this mean? This means that the law of Moses calls to repentance for sin. And it calls the hearers to love God with all their being. So that we may obtain salvation and spiritual and eternal life and God's blessings. And Deuteronomy 30 verses 19 through 20 emphasizes this. It emphasizes that the gospel is found in these words when it says, I call heaven and earth as witness against you today. These are the words of God that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live may love the Lord your God, may obey Him, and may remain faithful to Him, for He is your life. And when many people were going away from Jesus and deserting Him, and Jesus turned to His apostles and asked them if they would leave him too. Peter piped up and replied in John 6, 68, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the one who has the words that bring eternal life. Even as Moses had those words, you have those words. Peter testifies that like the words God gave to Moses, the words God gave to Jesus, the law God gave to Jesus, those words have power to bring about eternal life in those who respond to them in repentance and faith. Next, in Acts 7, verses 39 through 53, Stephen points out that the Jews, very embarrassing for the Jewish religious leaders who revered Moses, the Jews, they rejected Moses. And they worshipped false gods. And so God sent them to Babylon, which is interestingly where the sermon of Stephen began, how God called Abram out of Babylon and out of the worship of false gods, and then God sent the Jewish nation back to Babylon, back to their worship of the false gods that they were worshiping. He sent them back to where they would be in bondage because they had made themselves slaves of false gods. And then he goes on to add that the Jews had persecuted and killed those who predicted the coming of the Messiah. And now the Jews, these religious leaders, had murdered the very Messiah Moses told them was coming. 
Stephen hasn't even mentioned Jesus' name or his resurrection. How can he get in trouble, right? He, he didn't even say in the name of Jesus. He didn't even mention Jesus' name. But it is clear to everyone who has heard this sermon that Stephen has incredibly, powerfully just proved that Jesus is the new prophet predicted by Moses and greater than Moses. Jesus is the Messiah. And when the Jewish religious leaders heard this and understood this, they became enraged at Stephen. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, remains calm. In the midst of a raging storm. Stephen does not argue. Stephen is not afraid. Stephen doesn't even say anything more to them. He just simply, while they're all raging, he just looks up and fixes his gaze on the heavens. And then something incredible happens. God miraculously, supernaturally enables Stephen to see through the heavens into the heaven of heavens and to see the glory of God, to see Also, the body of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, standing there beside the glory of God at God's right hand in the heavenly, in the heaven of heavens. And Stephen calmly and fearlessly rejoices that he can give a supernatural witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And he says in verse 56, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He just told them that God has revealed that Jesus, whom they condemned as a criminal and crucified, Jesus now stands in the presence of God, vindicated as holy and righteous, the righteous one before God. And he stands at the right hand of God, reigning over all the world, even as Jesus predicted he would do. But their minds are closed to the truth. And they yell and they cover their ears lest they should have to hear what he is saying and they consider to be blasphemy. And they drag him out of the city and they begin to throw rocks at him. And in verse 58, the word witness is used to refer to those who supposedly witnessed his blasphemy. Those who could testify that Stephen deserved to die. They were false witnesses. But Stephen Stephen became like Jesus. One who was put to death for telling them the truth. And as they throw stones at Stephen, he accepts his death because God has enabled him to witness to the resurrected Christ. And he sees his Savior and he knows that his soul will be with him soon in glory. And then, just as Jesus asked God to receive his spirit at his death, Stephen prays to Jesus as God and says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And as Jesus taught us to forgive those who sin against us, and to love those who persecute us, Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, and the holiness of Jesus, now prays, Lord, Do not hold this sin against them. And he says it so loudly that all of them can hear him say that. And then he departed this world. We might wonder if if Stephen was just casting his pearls to swine. We might say, well, I'm not going to talk to them. I could just be casting my pearls to swine. Why witness to them? They won't listen. An excuse we might use. We might wonder if if Stephen died needlessly, we might think, well, yeah, if I talk to them, I'll probably die needlessly. I won't accomplish anything. We might wonder if his prayer was ever answered by God. 
But God immediately answers all of these thoughts that enter our mind. And in Acts chapter 8, God tells us of the incredible good that he brought out of this incredible evil. Even as God had already saved all who believe in Christ through that incredible evil, the death of his divine son. We have seen the witness of the apostles. We have seen the witness of Stephen, the deacon. And now in chapter 8, we see the witness of all believers. Acts 8, 1 through 4 says, Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. All except the apostles were scattered. They stayed there, and I'm sure there were some, some of the Christians that stayed there. The church in Jerusalem continued, but the vast number of the believers in the church of Jerusalem were scattered throughout all Judea and all Samaria, and even further, they fled for their lives. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women and put them in prison. So those who were scattered, those, the ones who were scattered, went on their way, <coughs> preaching the word. Now John Stott comments that this last phrase here, normally translated preaching the word, is better translated sharing the good news. Some indeed, indeed did preach to the people because they were preachers, but the vast majority of those who were scattered were not preachers, but all who were scattered went evangelizing, bringing the good news of the gospel to people, sharing them, telling them what Christ has done. As I mentioned before, there were probably more than 20,000 believers in Jerusalem, and now probably more than 15,000 believers were scattered all throughout Israel. The vast majority were not preachers. They simply shared the gospel with those that they came into contact with. The witness of Stephen resulted in his death and the persecution of all the Christians in Jerusalem. These were very tragic events, but notice how God uses them for glorious good. God now sends out most of those 20,000 believers to witness to the resurrected Christ. Acts 9 and 11 tells us that they shared the gospel in all of Judea, that is, all of southern Israel. They shared the gospel in all of Samaria, that is, all of northern Israel. They shared the gospel in all of Galilee, which was north of Samaria, and in Phoenicia, which was north of Galilee, and in Damascus, which was north of of Phoenicia, and in Antioch, which was north of Damascus. They also went to Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean, and to Cyrene, which was in Africa, west of Egypt. Now, from Jerusalem, Cyprus, this island in the Mediterranean Sea, was 250 miles away to the northwest. Antioch was... 300 miles away to the north. And Cyrene was 1,200 miles away to the west. These scattered believers went out in all directions and are mentioned as being immediately almost 1,200 miles away, up to 1,200 miles away. And when they went to these areas, the believers began to share the gospel with all the peoples in those areas. Jews in Judea, half Jews, half Gentiles in Samaria, and Gentiles in the lands out beyond that, in Galilee and the other lands. And repeated statements in Acts tell us that a very large number believed as a result of the non-miraculous witness of these common believers. The gospel can't be taken to everyone by preachers or even by missionaries, but it can be taken to everyone by believers. 
The church needs factory workers and engineers and salesmen and administrators and school teachers and lawyers and nurses and doctors and judges and fast food workers. And because Christians are in all these jobs and places, everyone can be reached with the gospel. Imagine if every believer in the world simply sought to develop a a close friendship with one unbeliever in the year 2023. Imagine if every believer sought to share their life with one unbeliever. Imagine if they sought to share the gospel with them in 2023. There is the potential through the Holy Spirit for hundreds of millions of people to come to faith in Christ in one year. Imagine if every believer in this church were to seek to develop a a close friendship with one unbeliever in 2023. Imagine if you were to seek to share your life with them. Imagine if you were to seek to share your faith with them in 2023. It is possible through God's Spirit for this church to double in one year. There is no higher calling than to be a witness to the resurrected Christ. You have never seen Jesus face to face. But you know that Jesus has saved you. And that he lives within you. And you can witness to the wonderful power of Jesus Christ to grant forgiveness of sins and peace in your heart and joy in him. I urge you. To pray for God to make you a bold and joyful witness to Jesus Christ in the year ahead.